0: Good morning. What a great crowd you are. By the way, uh something you don't know about me. <laughs> I collect church bulletins, not ours. <laughs> if you're ever uh apostas, I mean visiting another church, uh, you know, out of the area, uh <laughs> <laughs> on vacation, uh, bring me a bulletin. I get all excited. About, I mean, you know, little thing, Coffee and church bulletins really excite me, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's my hobby. I make different types of coffee, different types of ways, and I read old church bulletins. I mean, they're, you should try it sometime. But uh, anyway, so if you ever have a church bulletin, I get really excited about that. We, we see what other churches are doing, get ideas, and, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, you you probably are thinking that he's making that up, but, uh, it's true. I have a whole drawer full of them. They're really fun. When I get really discouraged, I go back through them and no, I'm just kidding. All right. Um, Joshua chapter eight verses one through 29. That's our text this morning. The topic, the Israelites execute God's unusual battle strategy against AI while Joshua holds up the spear. For them all to see the title of our message, Spear Me the Details. And so let's read the text. I've often told you, you can suggest titles for the messages and I'm open to that. Now, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid nor be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise, go up to Ai. I have given into your hand the king of AI, his people, his city and his land, and you shall do to AI and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, only its spoil and its cattle you shall take as booty for yourselves, lay an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua rose and all the people of war to go up against AI and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city, behind the city. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you be ready. Then I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and it will come about when they come out against us as at the first, then we shall flee before them. For they will come out after us till we have drawn them from the city. For they will say, They are fleeing before us as at the first. Therefore, we will flee before them. Then you shall rise from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it will be when you have taken the city that you shall set the city on fire. According to the commandment of the Lord, you shall do. See, I have commanded you. Joshua therefore sent them out, and they went to lie in ambush and stayed between Bethel and Ai on the west side of Ai. But Joshua lodged that night among the people. Then Joshua rose up early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the people of war who were with him went up and drew near. And they came before the city and camped on the north side of Ai. Now a valley lay between them and Ai. So he took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai on the west side of the city. And when they had set the people, all the army that was on the north of the city and its rear guard on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. Now it happened when the king of Ai saw it, that the men of the city hurried and rose early and went out against Israel to battle, he and all his people, at an appointed place before the plain. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled by the way of the wilderness. So all the people who were in AI were called together to pursue them and they pursued Joshua and were drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in AI or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. So they left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward AI. Give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. So those in ambush arose quickly out of their place. They ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand, and they entered the city and took it and hurried to set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. So they had no power to flee this way or that way, and the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back on the pursuers." Now, when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Then the others came out of the city against them. So they were caught in the middle of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And they struck them down so that they let none of them remain or escape. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought him to Joshua it came to pass when Israel had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of A.I. in the field, in the wilderness where they pursued them. And when they all had fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned to A.I. and struck it with the edge of the sword. So it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of A.I., For Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he struck out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as booty for themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation to this day. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we understand this to be a literal and true history of a conquest of the city, city of Ai and the destruction of its army and its uh, inhabitants, along with the men and women of Bethel. But as always, we know that it is written for our learning, our knowledge, that there are types and uh, pictures in it for us, Lord, to help us in our own time of battle against supernatural enemies here in the last days. I pray that you would cause our attention to be drawn to those things that are most needful. And, uh, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be here ministering from heart to heart. We thank you and praise you. We agree in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Joshua was not Joshua's original Hebrew name. Forty years prior at the border of the promised land, twelve men were selected to go in and spy out the land. Among those listed in the Old Testament book of Numbers was Hoshea, the son of Nun. A few verses later you read, Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. The two names are very similar. Hoshea in the Hebrew means, may Jehovah save. Joshua means, Jehovah is salvation. The name change grows in significance once you realize that the name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. It seems God instructed Moses to change Hoshea's name to Joshua so future generations would see him as a type or a picture of Jesus Christ. Joshua stands out as a type of Jesus in this victory at Ai. I see the type in the mention of the spear. The mention of the spear in connection with Jesus immediately takes your mind to the cross upon which he died on Calvary. To be absolutely certain the Lord was really dead, the Roman soldier pierced his side with a spear. Jesus is your Joshua. The spear that pierced him is just as significant for us in our battles as was the spear Joshua held for the Israelites at Ai. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your Joshua shows you the spear in your battles. And number two, your Joshua sustains the spear in your battles. First of all, in verses one through 17, your Joshua shows you the spear in your battles. Even before you read the conclusion here of this battle in chapter eight, you know that once Joshua stretched out the spear, victory over AI was assured the Israelites could see him and they drew their strength and confidence from his stance with the spear. If you are in a battle or the next time you are, you need to see Jesus speared. Once you do, victory is assured. Now, what do I mean? I mean that Jesus took the spear on the cross to defeat our enemies. Our enemies are summarized in Scripture as the world, the flesh, and the devil. Each of them was utterly defeated as Jesus died on the cross. The world is utterly defeated at the cross. You read in Galatians chapter 6 verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me. The world has been crucified. It is defeated at the cross. Your flesh is utterly defeated at the cross. Romans chapter 6 verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin, the flesh, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And so your flesh, your propensity to sin, these drives and desires and habits that tend towards sin, they have been defeated at the cross. The devil is utterly defeated at the cross. Colossians 2.15 says, having disarmed principalities and powers and he's speaking of demonic principalities and powers, it says Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. When that Roman spear pierced the Lord, showing him to be really dead, your enemies were utterly defeated. Now, the funny thing about defeated enemies is oftentimes they fight on. The armies of Ai and Bethel were already defeated. They were defeated in verse 1, Before this battle ever began, still, they fought on and the Israelites had to engage them using God's strategy. It's the same way with the world, the flesh and the devil. They fight on after you become a Christian and we must engage them. We engage them with what might be called the strategy of the cross. The cross that defeats your enemies seems foolish and weak against them. The cross is, and I quote from first Corinthians chapter one, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When Jesus was crucified, his enemies gloated, thinking they had defeated him once for all. His closest disciples doubted and scattered, but his death on the cross as your sacrifice and substitute was the final blow against sin and death for all who would believe in him. We're on this side of the cross, the resurrection side of the cross, and we glory in the cross. We talk about the cross. We wear crosses around our neck. It's an important part of our literature and our, uh, you know, uh, artwork and all of those kinds of things. But in reality, the cross, this uh, this instrument of execution is really an instrument of weakness and shame and foolishness to the world. If you told somebody in the world, how are you going to overcome these problems and these difficulties? You say, I'm going to go the way of the cross. I'm going to die to myself and and get into all of that. You are seen as foolish. Foolish. When we say your Joshua shows you the spear in your battles, we mean that God's way of victory involves the strategy of the cross. You will seem weak, even foolish when you follow God's strategy for victory. This weakness and foolishness is represented in God's strategy against AI. Israel initially had only sent 3000 men against AI the first time. Israel's total army numbered 600,000 men. After the initial defeat, you'd think they'd simply overrun AI by sheer numerical superiority in an all-out assault. God's strategy was to retreat from the men of AI and to lay in wait with an ambush. God's way... Seemed weak and foolish, but it was not. It was exactly the strategy to take the city and to do something else to teach God's people, including us, the value of submitting to the cross. Here's something that will help you enormously in your Christian life. God is always working in you. He is always working to complete the good work that he has begun in you. We have a tendency to think of the outward work, the service that we have volunteered for, the position that we are seeking, the the ministry that we want to perform. God is interested in that. He gives us the blessed opportunity to share with him in the work of furthering the gospel. He gifts us and gives us the anointing of his spirit. No doubt about those things. But equally important to your heavenly father is the work that he's doing in your heart, maturing you, producing Christian character in you, teaching you lessons about himself and his son, Jesus Christ. And these lessons, because they're about the Lord, are going to involve servanthood, humility. They're going to seem sometimes weak and foolish from the world's point of view. And so think about that. Why get frustrated in the ministry when God is using it to work his work in you? And in the end, that's what really it's all about. It's conforming you and I into the image of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that you are predestined to be like Jesus Christ. Once you've been saved, it is your destiny for God to mold and shape you into the image of Jesus Christ. And he uses everything to do that. And so look inward sometimes. Don't always just look outward when you're frustrated, when you're discouraged, when things don't seem to be going right. What is God doing in your heart to make you more like jesus christ think of the lord 30 years god in human flesh you see what he did for three and a half years he healed the sick he he created food where there was no food he walked on water he calmed storms he raised the dead the deaf received their hearing the the blind received their sight the dumb could speak again but for 30 years He lived in relative obscurity in the worst village in the entire Holy Land, Nazareth. So much so that they would say, can anything come out of Nazareth? uh, And yet there, Jesus learned obedience to his heavenly Father. In a sense, he was prepared for that ministry. Can we expect any less? Now... In verses 3 through 13, you read a detailed account of the battle plan. There's some confusion among scholars as to the exact deployment of the Israelite troops. And some of this chapter is not necessarily in chronological order. So commentators and scholars have a hard time getting a handle on this. Some commentators see a deployment of three forces, 30,000 sent to ambush, the main body of 500 Uh, 70,000 coming out against AI and then retreating and 5,000 sent to guard against enemy reinforcements from Bethel. Other commentators think it's ludicrous that the 12,000 men of AI or however many fighting men there were would go out against a force of 570,000 even if they were retreating. And so they see a different deployment. I learned a long time ago that in an area that's not essential, It's not an essential doctrine. If guys a lot smarter than me disagree, then I probably am not going to be able to figure it out. And it's not really all that necessary to figure out because in any scenario, the armies of Israel seemed weak and foolish. And that's the point that this strategy is making. Whatever the exact deployment of troops it was a weak and foolish strategy. Retreat and ambush are not the tactics of a well oiled military machine. Let's say you're in law enforcement, you're on the SWAT team, and you, you know, uh, gather for your briefing, and you're Captain or your sergeant says to you, here's our strategy. We're going to act like we're going to storm the place. But then at the last minute, as soon as they open, like the window shade, the you three guys in the front, you, you know, strong V-shaped guys that say police, you know, across. I want you to turn and run screaming like little babies or like women. And and that will uh, draw their them out. And then we will ambush them from the rear. Yeah, sure. No, we're going in strong and hard. We're, we're going to blow that place up. I mean, so this is, this is the, the strategy that God has is a very unusual strategy when you're 600,000 fighting men against a force of less than 12,000. Often I want to act or react as I've been taught by the world. My flesh rises up to express itself all the time. The devil incites me. But then the indwelling Holy Spirit shows me the cross where my Savior died. We, we don't always see it because we're, you know, we're too busy in the world or with our flesh or whatever. Uh, we're not really listening to the still small voice of the Spirit. But I think one of his primary goals is to show me the cross and the power of the cross in my life. And when I see it, suddenly love and forgiveness and long-suffering and kindness and gentleness, not rendering evil for evil, these all seem to be better and more powerful strategies than to yield my flesh to the ways of the world or to the wiles of the devil. And so let's break it down a little further. Some of Joshua's army was told to wait. Do you like to wait for anything? Uh, The other day I decided I'm going to get my wife an iPhone right? The new iPhone came out, the iPhone 3G. And I thought, nobody will want to wait in line for the new iPhone because they already did that. And so I, ha- I get up early and I happen to be up. And so at 7.15, I drove down to AT&T and there were 75 people in line to get the iPhone. And I already know that they only have five probably in the whole store, but they're not going to tell you. And so I drove by and I thought, I am not going to wait. Nanny, nanny, you can't make me wait. And so, you know, I, but they made me wait anyway. I had to go back later and order it and then wait for it to come. But I could wait on my own terms. I could wait at home. I just waited for it to come. I didn't have to wait in line. I hate to wait. There's only a few things in life that I will wait for. And I'm, I'm going to tell you what they are. But anyway, uh, so we don't like to wait. We want it and we want it now, whatever it happens to be. And so this is a lesson, though, that we have to learn. We have a little pamphlet over in the bookstore that I recommend. It was written by Pastor Don McClure. It's called "Wait Training, W-A-I-T. And it hits this issue of how God puts us in situations and develops scenarios by which we must wait for the fulfillment of something so that he can teach us something about his love and grace and mercy in our own lives so that he can develop our Christian character. And when we get ahead of that, sure, we might accomplish something, we might get recognized, something might happen out here, but nothing happens in here, and this is the place that God wants to work. We need hearts that are alive to the Lord, Some of the army of the Israelites was told to lay in ambush. Not only must they wait, they must do it stealthily and quietly. Sometimes we want to be noticed and recognized and encouraged, but it seems we are passed over. but God is in no hurry. He's always completing the good work he began in you. Waiting in obscurity can be more important to the final outcome of your Christian character than anything else. Some of the army was told to retreat as if they'd been defeated. None of us likes to appear to be retreating. When we are called upon to do things like forgive and be long-suffering, it seems as if we are retreating. It seems as if we are losing ground. We're not. We're standing on the ground of the cross, acting and reacting as Jesus did toward his enemies. There's also an application here for us as a fellowship. I told you at the beginning of our studies in Joshua that we're going to try and put ourselves in this book and also ourselves corporately as a fellowship. Regardless of the deployment of forces, there were still three groups of soldiers and a whole bunch of people not involved in the actual fighting who lent support from the camp. Joshua picked 30,000 out of 600,000. Then he picked 5,000 out of the 30,000. Some of them hid. Some of them retreated. Some of them may not have done anything at all, really. Yet God said in verse 1 that all the people of war were involved. A fellowship of God's saints is like that. It's just like that. We're all involved in every battle. Yet Jesus chooses our places or positions as he sees fit. My place may seem small or insignificant, It never is. Our fellowship is always moving against the enemy on various fronts. By definition, ministry is an assault onto enemy territory. It is a moving out with the Bible, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, into territory that has previously belonged to the enemy, especially if you're launching new ministries like we're doing in and on Friday night. All of us have a part in that. Now, you may never come. You may never be uh, uh, involved in that. You may never serve at any of those things. But all of us, to the extent that we are a fellowship of believers, are involved in every one of those assaults. Don't think your place is insignificant. We need people in the camp supporting, praying, thinking about Handing out invites, doing all of those kinds of things as much as we need people on the front lines and we're all in it together and it's all by God's design. There are times in my life I would like to be doing other things, more things. Sometimes I'd like to be doing less things. It's more important that we understand what God wants us to be doing within the context of our local fellowship and then reaching out with the gospel. God's strategy always involves all of our men and women of war and in the camp to be walking in his strength and by his strategy. Now, the second thing here, verses 18 through 29, your Joshua sustains the spear in your battles. Years earlier, Joshua had led Israel's army against the Amalekites. Moses looked down from higher ground. As long as Moses held up his hands, Joshua prevailed in the valley below. Now it was Joshua standing on higher ground holding up his hand. The same principle would seem to be in play. As long as Joshua held up his hand, the Israelites would be victorious. There's another beautiful type here. I'll just mention it to you and you can meditate on it. If you're familiar with the story of Moses, and you probably are, it's a famous story, you know that Moses tired and he couldn't keep his hands up on his own. And his hands kept falling and when his hands would fall, the battle didn't go as well. And so these two guys, Aaron and Hur, got on either side of Aaron and they propped up his hands and, and, and helped him. Joshua holds up the spear and you get no sense that he had any difficulty holding it up for as long as it took all by himself. No one holding his arms up. Joshua a type of Christ. Moses represents the law. He was the law giver. He couldn't go into the promised land because the law cannot bring you into the promised land. The law can only take you so far. Jesus has to take you into the promised land, the land of grace and rest and God's mercy. The law can only go so far and it is weak in that it can't conquer the flesh. It needs to be propped up. It needs to be helped all the time. Not so Jesus Christ. When you accept Christ as your savior, he has all the strength that you need. There's no weakness at all. In your savior, he is the fulfillment of the law for you so that you can live the Christian life. A lot of beautiful types in this scripture. Joshua is standing on the higher ground, holding his hands up. Look at verse 18. The Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward AI, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that was in his hand toward the city. Then in verse 26. For Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. He sustained the spear. It rendered the enemy powerless. Look at verse 20. When the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw and behold the smoke of the city ascended to heaven. They had no power to flee this way or that way. Because Joshua took the high ground with the spear, Israel's enemies had no power. Because Jesus took the high ground of Calvary, your enemies have no real power. Now, at some point, the men of Bethel joined the men of Ai. It was a bad day for them. Uh, They, too, were wiped out. And then much is made of the death of Ai's king. Let's look at verses 23 and 29. But the king of Ai, they took alive and brought into Joshua. Then in verse 29, and the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his corpse down from the tree, cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raise over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Boy, those people were brutal. People in the modern world are brutal as well. On April 2nd, 1945, the body of executed Italian leader Benito Mussolini was taken to the Piazzale Loreto in Milan. He was hung upside down on meat hooks from the roof of an Esso gas station. While he was there, his body was stoned and otherwise abused by passersby. I've um, occasionally I'll hear or read something about people who are, are definitely against the death penalty, I mean, under any circumstances. But I've, I've read and seen where some of them have said, if we catch Osama bin Laden, they want him executed. Uh, and so, now, is, it, is that brutality? It just shows that there is this part of us that, that understands that great evil exists and must be dealt with brutally. Now, we previously quoted the verses that speak of the world and the flesh and the devil being crucified. The picture for us here in this brutal, final treatment of Ai's king is that we need to see the world and the flesh and the devil that way. Not as just, you know, rendered inoperative or, or not as we're stronger than them. We need to understand that when Jesus died on the cross, those three enemies were crucified in a brutal way on the cross so that they have no power over us as believers. Do they still engage us in battle? Absolutely. Do we still fail? Yes, we do. Why? Because we yield to their influence. We're drawn by the world. We allow the devil to use the world to get us off track. We yield to our flesh. And that's the whole point of Romans 6, 7, and 8 is that we don't have to yield to these things, but we do. And the point of this, and that's why this is so graphic, is the word I would use, is that when I am tempted by the world, by the flesh, by the devil, I need to understand that they are no more alive, they have no more power over me than the dead king of Ai, who was hung all day and then thrown in front of the gate of that city that was destroyed and a heap of rocks built over him. You know, the Christian life, a lot of what we do is information, and it's important information. You have to teach the Word of God. You have to have the right information. But then a lot of times we think, okay, now how exactly do I apply that? And the application is what we would call transformation. It is realizing things that are true and then just walking in their power. There's no steps 1 through 12 or 1, 2, and 3 for how to apply the cross. There's just the realization that I don't have to sin anymore because my flesh was crucified on the cross. Do I sin? Yeah. What happens when I do? I yield. I yield to my enemy. Then what happens? I confess my sin and he's faithful and just to forgive me my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And then I uh, reenter the battle. And this is why we need to, in a sense, return to the cross. While the apostate Christian world is saying we don't need the cross, nobody died on the cross, we don't need an atonement, God is within you, we need to get back to the basic old rugged cross on which the Prince of Glory died and realize that there is my victory in that transformation. And just like it says that great heap of stones remains to this day, Jesus' victory for us remains to this day. It is always available to you and I. It never loses its power over your enemies. I ran across some phrasing this week in my research that might help us put this in perspective. Maybe it'll be helpful to some of you. People talk a lot about the power of positive thinking. Have you, you're familiar with that phraseology? When I was in sales, every year I was forced to go to a PMA conference, positive mental attitude. And it was always a day-long conference in a stadium or an arena with these guys that would give you techniques for thinking positively, uh, learning how to make lemonade out of lemons, you know, that kind of a thing. And always having a positive viewpoint. There are about a, mission, a million different definitions of, and techniques about positive thinking. Christians don't practice positive thinking. They practice positional thinking. You realize your position is in Christ. And so when I'm assaulted by my enemies, I realize that I am on the cross with Christ. I am raised from the dead with Christ. My enemies have no more power over me than they have over my Lord Jesus Christ, unless I yield to them. Real power comes from that position. When my enemy engages me in battle, I need to let Jesus show me the spear, and I need to remember that he sustains it. The cross may seem to be foolishness or weakness, but it is the power of God to us who are saved. Let's pray together. Father, we appreciate these things. They almost seem too simple, but they're so simple, Lord, that we have trouble with them. We, we try to make them more complicated than they need to be. I pray that we would allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us by the still small voice and that we would know, Lord, that we have power and victory already over our enemies and that we would walk in that power and victory. I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, as well, who are in the battle right now or will be very soon, that they would know that uh, there's nothing to fear, that they would just walk by faith and not by sight, that they would see you on Calvary's hill, dead and resurrected for them, that the victory is theirs. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.